Let us pray. As for me, I am poor and in misery. Hasten to me, O God. You are my helper and my deliverer. O Lord, do not tarry. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The evening is advancing and darker night is near. The bridegroom is arising and soon he will draw near. The phrasing, the wording rather, of that first hymn strikes us, I think, all more after we've changed our clocks back for daylight savings time in the evening, right? The darkness is upon us at dinner. As my wife remarked at me, this past week. And of course it goes with today's gospel where Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a wedding feast and the church to ten virgins. Purity is a much understand, much misunderstood, much maligned concept these days. The first thing that comes to mind, perhaps, when we say the word purity is a reaction of judgmentalism. Or maybe if you're like me, you think of the Bavarian Purity Law of 1615, regulating proper beer. I don't know, my mind is strange. I'm just telling you what happened. Purity, however, is a really important topic in the Bible. And it has huge implications for God's people, as we see both in Amos and Matthew today. Both of those passages talk about purity and about being ready. In the Bible, we see that purity is the gateway to holiness. Purity is the gateway to holiness. And conversely, that impurity or corruption, blemish, bars God bars one, rather, from God's presence. Purity is therefore the gateway not just to holiness, but to God. And this is the literal point of the parable, the imagery that Jesus gives today. And it's not new. It's something that goes back into the Old Testament. The very imagery of the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament is all about this. The physical architecture of the temple complex preaches it. And it's the same in a properly appointed church building where one must pass by the baptismal font and sometimes under a cross in order to approach the throne of the Lord, the high altar. From Mount Sinai, to the creation of that tent of meeting and later tabernacle temple, God instituted elaborate rituals showing his people about purity. And these were for the welfare of his people. For God is pure, and since Genesis 3, humans are not. Let's look at God being pure. Another of the minor prophets, Habakkuk, says in chapter 1, verse 13 of God, You who are of pure eyes 
than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. That's a pretty drastic statement. To say that God is one of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. The very visage of it is repulsive and makes him turn away. The Old Testament is full of imagery of ritual purification, too. There's sacrifices of purification. There's washings of purification. In order to even approach that meeting place with God, one has to be pure. And this has not changed, dear friends, contrary to what some think. Just last week, we heard from Matthew chapter 6 in the Beatitudes, our Lord Jesus Christ say, Blessed are the pure in, ha- in heart, for what? They shall see God. If anything, the Lord Jesus points out that our fallen nature is worse than we think it is. Think on his words in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, where he says to his disciples, It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person or makes him unclean or impure. He continues in verse 17, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person, making him thus impure. Continuing in verse 19, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And these are what defile a person. So what do we say about our purity? Well, we are terribly impure without the intervention of God. And that's a huge part of the Christian faith. It cannot be dispensed with. Some would say and ask, can we not dispense with that because it's Old Testament stuff? No, we cannot. We ought not, and we dare not. We beseeched the Lord just a few minutes ago that we might purify ourselves as he is pure, that we may be made like him. That's what we prayed in the collect of the day. Purify ourselves as he is pure, that we may be made like him. And just only prior to that, in the collect for purity, we asked the Lord to cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we might worship. Every time we enter into a church, we're walking into the Lord's house, into the presence of God. And that's why we should enter respectfully, with hushed voice, It's why we bow to the altar. It's why we kneel. Entering a church is a foretaste of the heavenly wedding banquet where Jesus the bridegroom comes to us. And that's what he speaks about today in Matthew's Gospel. It's a tremendous privilege and honor to be bidden, to be asked by the bridegroom to come to the open doors of the banquet. But just like the parable of the wedding banquet that we saw a few weeks ago, grace covers us. Yes, grace garments us, but change is required. Purity is required. 
In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, the author restates Deuteronomy 4.24, writing, Therefore, and he's writing to the church, mind you, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's not buddy Jesus, right? Our God is a consuming fire, says the author of Hebrews. So there's a myth that transgresses all strains of modern Christianity. Both the conservative evangelical and the liberal mainline dispense with purity. And they do so for different reasons. And this idea would have been utterly foreign to our Christian ancestors, dear friends. Such erroneous views either see God as not requiring purity in the first place, that would be the liberal mainline view, or misinterpret grace as having accomplished the purity of the Christian's soul, requiring no transformation after one comes to Christ. That's the modern evangelical view. Why such obfuscation? Why such confusion? Well, because I believe the goal of being a Christian has been obfuscated, obfuscated and confused. If I were to ask you, what's the point of being a Christian, what would you say? I've asked you before, what's the point of coming to church? But what if I ask you, what's the point of being a Christian? What would you say? Some common answers are to go to heaven when I die, to not be in hell, to be happy, to feel better about myself, because someone who is important to me asked me to. Jesus gave us the answer, however, last week in the Beatitudes, when he says the point of the Christian is to see God. And St. Paul reiterates it when he says that then we shall see him face to face. St. Augustine of Hippo, that great doctor of the church, says to behold God is the end and purpose of all loving activity. Let me say that again. To behold, right? Which is an old way of saying to see, be face to face with. God is the end and purpose of all loving activity activity. In today's gospel, the Lord Jesus once again uses this image of a marriage feast to challenge his disciples, and therefore the church, that to behold God and to sit at table with the bridegroom, with himself, Jesus, is the church's end and is the point to which you were created. It's your goal. It's what God made you to do. But without purity, beholding God is an impossibility. In fact, it's even dangerous, for he is a consuming fire. Without God's intervention, human beings can never be made pure, can never be made holy, can never enter into God's presence. That's why what I called earlier the liberal mainline churches fail to understand this basic point. In rejecting purity as the gateway to holiness, 
they reject God himself. And that's a tragedy, dear friends. Do you see? To say that purity doesn't matter is to reject God himself. To say that sin doesn't matter, to redefine it in your own terms, to say God will let me come to him, is to ignore what God has revealed and what God has said, and most importantly, what God has provided in Jesus. For God makes provision for purity. But what's tragic about it is so many churches, so many ministers, actually end up barring people from coming to the presence of God by giving them wrong information about purity. I know that you've had conversations with people that have been in that position because Leah and I have. And it's a tragic thing to see a soul so malformed wanting to follow Jesus but being given all the wrong things, all the wrong information, coming to confusion, being confounded. Such people don't think that sin matters. They don't think that sin can or must be hated and refused, turned away from and confessed. But St. John very succinctly says in his first epistle to the church, chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, Jesus, he is pure, he is faithful rather, and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, another way of saying purify us, from all unrighteousness. The purity of God, therefore, is loving and kind. It's generous. It's abundant. But we have to accept it. The wonderful news of the gospel is that the blood of Jesus on the cross is available to make any person pure, and any person available is, is able to enter into God's holiness by that blood. But denying that is to close the gate. To close the gate. And tragically, some close it forever. On the other hand, many conservative evangelical churches also fail to grasp the ongoing purification that must go on in the Christian's life confusing the initial righteousness given by their partaking of the faith with the continual impouring of purity and righteousness that's needed. And here's the, here's the rub on that. That, too, bars the gate to holiness. That, too, is a problem. and denies people a seat at the banquet table of the Lord. Against both of these twin falsehoods, Jesus' parable in Matthew 25 beats and comes powerfully, bringing us clarity. Against the first false information is the fact that notice who is it that awaits the bridegroom? What, what's the image used? The ten virgins. Do you think that's coincidence? You think Jesus was just like, oh, let's pull out the virgins. Yeah, that'll work. We'll use that as an image. No. They're virgins. Why? What are virgins? Pure. 
those without blemish, those without spot, sexually pure, particularly for virgins. This isn't coincidental. Jesus is using an image, a strong image of purity, to talk about who? People in the church. Right? You've been made pure by your baptism, by Christ's blood, I should say, through your baptism. Again, St. Augustine and St. Hilary both agree, saying these five and five virgins are all Christian souls, but some are wise and some are foolish. Virginity is a type of purity. These are virgins, for that is their state, but some are ardent and some are lax and unmindful as they continue in life. St. Hilary continues writing this, The first virgins, the first five, embraced the time available to them. The foolish troubled themselves only over present matters, and forgetting God did not direct their effort towards the hope of the resurrection. Do you see the two are both sets of virgins, but one persists in things spiritual and eternal, in the hope of the resurrection, and others do not. And so the parable here is speaking about the church and about Christians, but it's also making this distinction between the wise and foolish, the faithful and the unfaithful. Jesus asks you and I today, which are you? Which are you? Are you part of the first set or the second set? As a Christian in the Anglican tradition, you should have a proper understanding and reverence for purity and holiness. That's something that is part of our culture. You should not be bound by the lax traps of liberal mainstream Christianity in America or conservative evangelical Christianity in America. But do the actions of your thoughts, of your words, and of your hearts reflect wisdom or foolishness? Where are you in purity? You affirm that purity matters. Every time you come to the Lord's table, every Sunday, you say the collect for purity. And then we come and we kneel before it and pray the prayer of humble access, saying, Grant us, therefore, Lord, so to drink his blood, that our souls may be washed through his most precious blood. Purity matters. But what are you imbibing, dear Christian friend? Are you filling your lamps? Do you have the extra flask? Or are you running out because you're not imbibing of God's purity? 19th century author and commentator E.B. Pusey writes, In Holy Communion, God's Spirit is joined with their, that is, people that come to communion's spirit, and theirs penetrated by his are the very body and blood itself is hallowed. Our very body and blood is hallowed. The very body in which he dwells are made temples of God. You are made a temple of God by Christ. 
sanctified by his presence, Pusey continues, and having immortality again imparted to them so that though they seem to decay and part of them fall off and turn to corruption, boy, we feel that, don't we? As we go through the week, part of us seems to decay and fall off and turn to corruption and all seem dust, yet it is a dust full of life ready to be raised again and made glorious in his body, like his glorious body, because he dwells in it. So while Jesus' actions one time upon the cross, yes, cleansed us, we need this continual purifying, cleansing, and enlivening. Our life with Christ is more like a blood transfusion. Right? A patient who needs... Sorry, it's more like dialysis than a blood transfusion. Right? Let's say that you have a patient that's septic, and you give him a blood transfusion, and then you walk away. What's going to happen to the patient? He's going to die. You put good blood in, sure, but he's decaying. He's dying. But dialysis does what? Constantly is circulating the blood filtering the blood, putting the blood back in so that he can be prolonged, so that his life can go longer. That's what's going on spiritually for the Christian. It's a type of dialysis where the blood of Christ continues to flow through us so that we might live and get to the end if we partake of it. If we don't, we start to decay and fall apart. So God doesn't want to save you, as so many of us think of the word, just just save you so that you can go to heaven. No, God wants to change you, transform you. In the old language, fit you to heaven. We sing that, actually, on Christmas Eve, in, a way of, in, the, in the tune, away, away in a manger, remember the last verse? And fit us for heaven to live with you there. To fit you, to make you part and parcel of himself so that you can enjoy him forever. Again, if we turn back to St. Augustine, he writes this, to behold God is the end and purpose of our loving activity, but it is the end by which we are to be perfected, not the end by which we are to come to nothing. The end by which we are to be perfected. Dear friends, do not dismiss purity as the entrance to holiness or you will not see God. You cannot see God. Not because God bars it, but because you will not be fit to do so. You've been made pure as virgins. Persist to the end. Do not be fools frozen in place, fallen asleep, running out of oil. The words of the bridegroom are harsh in verse 11. They should make us shudder. Afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. In verse 12, Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. I do not know you. But God has made ample provision for our purity 
and transformation. He expects us to take advantage of it. All we have to do is partake of Him and live in Him, transformed by Him. Every Sunday this church meets to offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving and to receive the gifts of God for the people of God so that we might purify ourselves as He is pure. Each of you has at least one Bible in your house and probably a prayer book in your house too. For heaven's sakes, it's on our phones that we carry around for most of us. Don't neglect purity or the means that he's given you to be pure. Every one of us has friends in this parish for whom we can ask to pray for us, to study with, to speak of spiritual things with, to go through life's hardships next to. Choose them rather than the things of this world, rather than the endless scrolling of social media videos, reels, and podcasts where you get distracted. St. Paul's message is the same as our Lord's. When he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. St. James puts it more succinctly in his epistle. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lose not hope. Lose not hope of the resurrection. Embrace wisdom. For the Lord Jesus has promised to love you as a husband and to present you and sanctify you, having cleansed you by the washing of water and the word, that he might present you as the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That's his promise to you. Let us partake of that promise. Rejoice, rejoice, believers. And let your lights appear. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.